another hundred pages of, of uh, appendices and additional writings. And uh, Tolkien loved to write these stories, but he has a hard time ending his books. He drags the ending out. He wants to tie all the loose ends up, and it takes him several hundred pages to do it. So we're approaching now the end of the book of Genesis. Thankfully, God is a lot more efficient in writing and better at weaving the stories together. So we'll only have uh, now a few chapters left in the book of Genesis as God wraps up all of the, the plots and the storylines and ties things together. And he'll be able to tie it all up in four chapters instead of, you know, four or five or six or a hundred more pages. So we come to the conclusion here in chapter 47 in the book of Genesis. It's the beginning of the end. We're going to begin to see all of the storylines wrapping up. What is the result of the famine? How is Joseph's story and Jacob's story, the story of their family, going to begin to wrap up here as it points ahead? We've also seen a parallel of how their story is pointing to how God will ultimately save his people through Jesus and bring them to himself. God has used their lives to tell his story, to point ahead to what's coming after. In this chapter, we'll see how God is going to bring salvation from the seven-year famine, this famine that has been over the land of Egypt, over the land of Canaan, over the family of Jacob. One man, through Joseph's mediation and ruling, he will, he will be able to, to save all of his people from the famine. We'll also see how this is going to point to the final day of judgment. My main thesis this morning as we look at this text is that God will save his people as they submit to him. God will save his people as they submit to him. We'll take Genesis 47 in three parts. First, we'll look at verses 1 through 12. God provides for the family of Joseph. Then we'll look at verses 13 through 26. The Egyptian lives are saved. And then finally, we'll look at verses 27 through 31. Jacob will not be buried in Egypt. Follow along as I read verses 1 through 12 of Genesis 47. So Joseph went in and told Pharaoh... My father and my brothers, with their flocks and herds and all that they possess, have come from the land of Canaan. They are now in the land of Goshen. And from among his brothers, he took five men and presented them to Pharaoh. Pharaoh said to his brothers, What is your occupation? And they said to Pharaoh, Your servants are shepherds as our fathers were. They said to Pharaoh, We have come to sojourn in the land, and there is no pasture for your servant's flock, for the famine is severe in the land of Canaan. And now please let your servants dwell in the land of Goshen. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, your father and your brothers have come to you. The land of Egypt is before you. Settle your father and your brothers in the best of the land. Let them settle in the land of Goshen. And if you know any men who are among them, put them in charge of my livestock. Joseph brought in Jacob, his father, and stood before him with Pharaoh. And Jacob blessed Pharaoh. And Pharaoh said to Jacob, how many are the days of the years of your life? And, Pharaoh said to, and, Joseph, and Jacob said to Pharaoh, the days and years of my sojourning are 130 years. Few and evil have been the days of the years of my life. They have not attained to the days of the years of the life of my father and the days of sojourning. And Jacob blessed Pharaoh and went out from the presence of Pharaoh. Then Joseph settled his father and his brothers and gave them possession in the land of Egypt, the best of the land, and the land of Ramses, as Pharaoh had commanded. And Joseph provided his father, his brothers, and all his father's household with food according to the number of their dependents. If you remember last week, at the end of chapter 46, Joseph was once again hatching a plan for how his family was going to speak with Pharaoh. And it made us a little bit nervous because last time the family of Abraham spoke to a Pharaoh, last time Abraham had spoken to Pharaoh all the way back in Genesis 12, Abraham had lied to Pharaoh, if you remember. He had said, my wife is really my sister. He had been duplicitous to Pharaoh. So now, generations later, their family is once again going before Pharaoh and Joseph's scheme is to tell the truth. He says, brothers, tell him you're shepherds because you're shepherds. Tell him you want to live in Goshen because we want to live in Goshen. Don't make up stories. Don't be afraid of Pharaoh. Don't twist the truth. Don't try to impress him. Be honest, be simple, be humble before him. And in, in doing so, there's, there's a picture that the family of Abraham has finally come under the humility of God. They're not trying to trick the, the local ruler. We've seen this over and over again in Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob's life where they've been duplicitous with local rulers and leaders as they've interacted with them. But now finally, they're standing before a king and telling him the truth and speaking, and God is honoring that. They tell Pharaoh, we're a family of shepherds. We want to live in the land of Goshen. And God gives Joseph and his whole family great favor with Pharaoh. 
I'm reminded of Proverbs 21.1. It says, The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. And so God causes Pharaoh to delight that Joseph's family has arrived. He's excited that Joseph's here. Joseph, if you remember, has been his right-hand man now for over seven years. Everything Joseph has touched has been blessed. Pharaoh's been able to sit back, hand things off to Joseph, and Joseph is blessing the whole nation. He's provided so well to raise up this food. They're in the middle of a catastrophic famine, and Pharaoh doesn't have to do much about it. He sits back and says, talk to Joseph, he'll make it happen. We've got grain stored up to last to the end of the famine. God has been so good to him, and he recognizes that. Joseph's God is a God who takes care of him. So now here comes Joseph's family and their flocks, and he says, hey, if I can get a couple more Josephs to help me run stuff, this will be wonderful. And so God puts it in, in Pharaoh's heart to say, hey, I don't just want you guys to settle in Goshen. I want you to take over my livestock. Everything I've put into Joseph's hand has been blessed. What will happen if I put more things into the hands of Joseph's family? Can I have 12 Josephs? That'd be even better. And so the Pharaoh is excited to see them come. He's happy to give up the land of Goshen. He puts all of his Egyptians immediately under the, under the servanthood of these men he's just met because he knows their family. He knows that they, like Joseph, serve the true God and that God is blessing their hand. And so they're given over not just the land, but in charge of Pharaoh's livestock. That'll be important in a few verses here. And so they're given the best pasture. And then after this, we see in verse 7 that Jacob goes before Pharaoh, and it's his turn. And again, he's honorable to the leader. He, he blesses Pharaoh two times, you'll see in this passage. And Pharaoh, recognizing his old age, honors him and asks him his age. But notice the statement that Jacob gives here. He's, when asked how old he is, verse 9, the days of the years of my sojourning are 130. That's an old man. Few and evil have been the days of the years of my life, and they have not attained to the days and years of the life of my fathers, the days of their sojourning. What an answer. He says, I've lived 130 years, but those years have been hard. Those years have been marked by pain. And, and to him, they've been a few years. It doesn't feel like he's lived a nice long life. Why is Jacob saying that? Well, think about everything we've learned over Jake, about Jacob over the last few months. You know, his, his early life is categorized by him fighting and not getting along with his brother, trying to pull one over on him. And then after that, fleeing from his brother's wrath to go and live with Laban. Laban tricking him and him negotiating and trying to get a wife and getting the wrong wife and then getting his wife and 14 years of that and then trying to deal with figuring out how to get a flock from Laban and then finally coming home, being terrified of his brother Esau, making remediation there. And once he's settled, once he has his children, his wife Rachel, is, his Rachel, Rachel dies first. And then his favorite son Joseph is dead for what he thinks is decades. And those years fly by in sorrow, and sorrow robs him of those years as he watches his sons fight and, and not get along and cause him grief. And now finally, as he's come to God in his old age, 130 years have gone by, and he's come to God. He's trusting God, as we saw a few chapters ago. He's given up his life. He's given up his idols. He's recognized God as his Lord, and that God is the one who's taking care of him. And as he's come to this place, he's recognizing both the suffering and consequences of his own sin but also that God has now brought him into Goshen, that God did not let him go. And now here he is before Pharaoh's court. Here he is being able to bless the Pharaoh. Here he is now being given the best of the land of Egypt to live out his retirement, to live here now. So we'll see in a minute, 17 years that he'll get to, to retire in Egypt, that he'll get to enjoy seeing not his sons fighting with each other, not his sons being missing, but all of his sons working together in harmony. He will get the, the joy of his heart to see his family finally reunited here in Goshen. And so Joseph recognizes what God has done, both the sin and the disqualifications in his life and the life of his family, but also the abundant goodness, the abundant joy and peace that has now come to his family. And here I think we find our first application, and it's this. God's grace and reward for his people is undeserved, unearned, and abundant. You see, God has blessed their family despite generational sins, despite the specific sins of both Jacob and his, and his sons. Jacob has seen both of these in his life. Moses will later say of the nation of Israel in Deuteronomy 7, 6-8, For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. 
The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession. Out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth, it is not because you are more in number than any of the other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For you are the fewest of people. Why does the Lord love Israel? Listen, but it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you for the house of slavery from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Why does the Lord love us? He loves us because he says he loves us. Because he is a God who keeps his promises and is promised from the beginning to raise a people up. God's love is not and has never been based on our performance. It has never been us, based on us being good enough for God. We have never been able to earn our position before the Lord. And so God's love is both unearned and abundant as he's poured it out. As he's stayed with his family despite their constant disqualifying of themselves. And when you, when you feel your sin dragging you down, when you feel disqualified from being in God's family, when you see yourself failing over and over again, rest assured that your salvation is not based on what you've done or what you've said or how badly you messed up or how quiet you were when you wanted to share your faith. Your salvation is based on God's goodness and God's love, and it doesn't change. And it's so important for us to, to apply this to our lives, to recognize our salvation based on the goodness and love of God. Because if our salvation is based on His goodness and His love, on, on the completed work of the cross, then we can have true assurance of salvation. And on our best days, when everything seems right, and on our worst day, when everything won't go our way and we keep screwing up and we keep sinning, in both those cases, we can be sure that our salvation is assured in Jesus Christ, that we can know that God still loves us. But to base our salvation on our own performance is to, to invite a, a, a loss of our assurance, to invite anxiety, to invite, invite, to invite strife into our life and say, oh, I've, I was good yesterday, but today I've messed up, so now God can't love me anymore. And to, to live on that roller coaster of emotions is not where God wants us to be. God wants us to recognize that no matter our days, no matter our actions, His love is assured for us. And this gives us a peace and a strength and allows us to settle in, in the land of Goshen as Jacob does, to be resting in the harmony and the unearned grace of God. Jacob and his whole family have now finally submitted their lives to God. They've been changed by His power. We've seen how they've switched from contentious men to men who are honorable, who tell the truth, who love one another, and who work together. And we've seen how God has changed their hearts in previous chapters now. And, and this is being contrasted now. So we've seen now the fate of Jacob's family is they settle in the land of Goshen. So let's take some time and look at the contrast. Let's look at how the Egyptians are addressed. How jo the Egyptians' lives are saved, but it's going to be in a different way than how the Hebrews are saved. Follow along as I read verses 13 through 26 of Genesis 47. Now there was no food in the land, for the famine was very severe. So the land of Egypt, the land of Canaan, languished by reason of the famine. And Joseph gathered up all the money that was found in the land of Egypt, in the land of Canaan, in exchange for the grain that they bought. Joseph brought the money into Pharaoh's house. And when the money was spent all in the land of Egypt and in the land of Canaan, all the Egyptians came to Joseph and said, Give us food. Why should we die before your eyes? For our money is gone. And Joseph answered, Give your livestock and I will give you food. Exchange for your livestock if your money is gone. So they brought their livestock to Joseph. And Joseph gave them food in exchange for their horses, the flocks, the herds, the donkeys, all the livestock that year. When the year was ended, they came to him the following year and said, We have not hid from my Lord that our money is all spent. The herds of our livestock belong to our Lord. There is nothing left in the sight of the Lord but our bodies and our land. Why should we die before your eyes, both we and our land? Buy us in the land food, and that we may buy us in our land for food, and we will with our land and be servants to Pharaoh. And give us seed that we may live and not die, that the land may not be desolate. So Joseph bought all the land of Egypt for Pharaoh. For all the Egyptians sold their fields because the famine was severe on them. The land became Pharaoh's, and for the people, he made servants of them. From one end of Egypt to the other, only the land of the priests he did not buy, for the priests had a fixed allowance from Pharaoh, and lived on the allowance that Pharaoh gave them. Therefore they did not sell their land. And Joseph said to the people, Behold, I have this day brought you in your land from Pharaoh. 
Now here is seed for you, and you shall sow the land. And at the harvests you shall give a fifth to Pharaoh, and four fifths shall be your own, as seed for the field, and as food for yourselves and your household, and the food for your little ones. And they said, You have saved our lives. May it please, my Lord, we will be servants to Pharaoh. So Joseph made it a statute concerning the land of Egypt, and it stands to this day that Pharaoh should have a fifth. The land of the priests alone did not become Pharaoh's. We see in, in this, this section that Joseph has begun to spend the last next five years doling out, rationing out the food to the Egyptians and the Canaanites as this famine is absolutely ravaging the land. And we notice that Joseph is, is dealing wisely with the Egyptians. You'll notice that when they, they're the ones who very often are the ones bringing the complaint, bringing the, hey, we're out of money. They're, they're the ones starting the conversation. So Joseph, when gathering up the money, you'll notice, what do the, what do the Egyptians not say? They don't say, you're price gouging us. Why did you increase the price of grain? Why are you overcharging us for grain? They don't say that. Joseph doesn't raise the prices on them. He is honest. He shows integrity. He slowly is gathering up the money, but he's not putting an additional burden on them. And we can tell from their attitudes that they respect the way that Joseph is, is handing out the grain to them. And I, I think there's something honorable here. In the way that he's doing it, he's not keeping the money back to himself. He's not using this as an opportunity to make himself rich. He sees the suffering of the land, and he's gathering up the money slowly. He's charging them a fair price for the grain because they're running, they have nothing. And then he is giving the money to Pharaoh where it belongs. So Pharaoh is recognizing that he's collecting in all the money of the land, and so allows Joseph to keep being in charge. He's honoring his, honoring his master, Pharaoh, but he's also doing it in a way to make sure that the people will have food for the next five years. Joseph knows that this is not the last year of the famine and the food needs to last. So he's dealing wisely with them. In verses 15 through 17, the following year, Joseph begins to gather up all of their livestock and it's all being given over to Pharaoh. And if you remember from verse 6, who's in charge of Pharaoh's livestock? His brothers. So they're having a very busy year that year. They suddenly are now in charge of nearly all the livestock on all the land. And they're helping to make sure that the animals are well taken care of. They're very likely not just keeping the livestock standing around in a field, but they're renting it back out so that the Egyptians have livestock, have workhorses, have animals that can till the fields and keep business going. But the livestock is now owned and cared for by Pharaoh through the house of Joseph. And then in verses 18 through 26, the following year, they say, look, we've already given you our money. We've given you our livestock. There's nothing left but our lands and our bodies. And, and they're pleading, please don't let us die. And so what Joseph is doing here is he sets up a tax. He sets up a 20% tax upon the land and upon the grain. And in, a, in first reading, it, it almost sounds a little bit like slavery, and it sounds a little bit harsh. Like he's given free food to his family, but now here he is demanding 20% from the Egyptians who now have nothing. But what he's really doing here is he's not just taking 20% from them and giving them nothing. He's, he's, in a sense, mortgaging their land. He's putting a, a debt on the land. But in doing so, you'll notice that he gives them enough food, enough grain to feed everyone in the household. From the oldest man in the family down to the youngest, all of their servants will have food, all of their, their staff will have food, and then he's giving them seed. And this is important so that they can continue to sow the land to keep the soil erosion from the land from getting desolate. There's a great fear that if they do not put down at least some kind of seed or planting, that the soil will erode and they'll lose most of that good soil. And so he's thinking ahead and saying, hey, let's continue, even though we're in the famine, to continue to sow the land, to continue to reap just a small crop, to keep the soil, to keep the soil in the condition it needs to be in so that we'll have a faster recovery. And what he's doing here is giving them only a 20% tax and letting them keep an 80%. He doesn't keep 80 and give them 20. He keeps 20 and gives them 80 so that they'll be able, as the famine ends, to, to grow seed, to grow crops, to pay off their debts, to buy back their livestock, to begin to make money again and to quickly recover. His goal in this is to, to fairly deal with them, to raise money for Pharaoh, but also to make sure that Egypt will have a fast recovery period once the famine ends. He's not looking to profit and profiteer off of this, but instead is looking for a way to bless the Egyptians. And they recognize this because they have no food. They have nothing to bring to the table but their own bodies and their empty bellies. 
You know, he could have imposed any tax he wanted to. He could have said, you'll be slaves forever in Egypt. Everybody must now be a, a chattel slave. Pharaoh can do whatever he wants to you. But he doesn't do that. Instead, he sets them up as servants. He sets them up as under a debt, but a debt that can be paid off and that he can take care of. And so they come to him. And, and notice their response in verse 25. You have saved our lives. They're recognizing his kindness in this. He's giving them a way to feed their families, to survive the famine, to quickly be able to recover. Joseph is taking care of the Egyptians in a way that doesn't demean them, in a way that doesn't take advantage of them. And so they will be able to recover quickly. This passage is not about Joseph oppressing the Egyptians, but about him taking care of them. And this is important because if you know what's coming in Exodus chapter 1, in the next book, we're going to see a reversal. Here is Joseph being able to take advantage of the Egyptians and not doing that. Instead, showing them kindness, allowing them to, to go into debt so that their families can live, to give them an opportunity that is not slavery. And yet, we'll see, and you see in, in, in the first chapter of Exodus, that when the new Pharaoh comes up, what does he do to the Israelites? He enslaves them. He puts them under a chattel slavery. They are, this is a slavery that has no debt. There's no paying your way out of that a forever slavery, a harsh and cruel slavery, where he can demand the murder of their baby boys. And so while Joseph is kind and blesses the Egyptians in their need, the next Pharaoh in, in Exodus is going to be a curse upon them and is going to put harsh sanctions on them. And there's a, this is the beginning of a really sad uh, parallel here. But by trusting their whole lives to the ones who are saved. By the Egyptians trusting, they're looking to one man, the man who's coming from the Hebrews, this one man from the family of Abraham. He is their salvation. He is the one who blesses the world. And in doing this, Joseph is once again a picture of Jesus. And I don't want us to miss this. By his, by his wisdom, by his sacrifice, by his work, not just his family is saved, but the whole world is blessed. All of the Egyptians, all of the Canaanites are blessed by Joseph's actions. And, and sadly, this is one of the only generations of Egyptians where they're trusting in, in Abraham's family, but not Abraham's God. They miss it. They're probably one of the closest generations to almost get it, but they miss it. Because you'll notice that Pharaoh is still protecting his priests. They are still clinging to their old pantheon religion. They're still worshiping the sun god and the river god and the hippo god and the death god. They are still clinging to their old faith. They're going to Joseph for food. They're going to him to live for life. But they're still, as a nation, protecting their, their pagan priests and their idols. And it's, it's amusing, in a sense, that their religion has to be protected. Their gods, their priests have to be protected by the Pharaoh. Pharaoh's like, all right, we're not going to charge the priests. And he's giving them this, this protection. And, and on one side, you see the God of the Hebrews is protecting the Hebrews. And the God of the Egyptians is being protected by the Egyptians. You hear the irony there. Is your, is your God the one who is protecting you? Or do you have to go out and protect your, your false God? And there's, there's a, a really sad contrast here as the Egyptians both get the blessing, but completely miss the point. They completely miss God's people among them. And so God will use the sin of the next Pharaoh to keep his people separate. As the Egyptians miss out on who God really is, a new Pharaoh will arise in Exodus 1. And we'll hear in, in Exodus 1 verse 8, it says that Pharaoh did not know Joseph. He didn't know how kind Joseph was to the Egyptians. And so they will turn on them. And God will use the cruelty of the next Pharaoh to keep his people safe and to bring his people out of Egypt. And we'll see the significance of that in a, in a minute here, but I want to go ahead and point it out. This, this twisting of what Pharaoh will mean for evil, God will use for good. And so the generation of Egyptians is saved, is rescued by the Savior from the line of Abraham, but they miss God. They miss who he is. So how do we apply this to our own lives? And, I, I want, and the application, I think, is this. You can experience a partial blessing of God, but miss God altogether. You can experience the blessings of, of being around Christians, of being in a society of Christians, a society built by Christian men and women who've come before us, and still miss God. 
Notice how they are blessed by God. God has given them the food. They're surviving. They're going to be able to rebuild, but they don't have that relationship that lasts. In, in Exodus 12, 36, all the riches that they built up will be again taken from them. For after, the, after God uses the, the ten plagues, the Egyptians are going to be so afraid, so terrified of God, they're going to allow the Israelites to loot them. As the Israelites are leaving to go to the promised land, the Egyptians give up everything. They say, here, take all of our wealth. You know, Joseph helps them build, rebuild that wealth quickly. They're going to wind up actually giving it over to the Hebrews at the end in, in Exodus 12. So there's, there's even more layers to the, to the irony here of, the, of Joseph helping the Egyptians out, being cruelly mistreated in the following generation, and then God ultimately giving that wealth and taking that wealth for his own people. And so the Egyptians miss out on God. I'm reminded of Pilgrim's Progress by John Bunyan. In, in John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress, he tells a story of Christian on his way to the celestial city, but one of the most important stops he makes is at the home of the interpreter, who interprets many different rooms representing the Bible and lessons that Christian will need on his journey. And one of the lessons he takes him to is very simple. He takes him into a room with two children named Patience and Passion. And Patience is waiting patiently, surprise, for the things that are eternal, the good things in life. But passion wants everything now. And so passion has brought a, brought a box of treasures. And he laughs at his brother and says, ha ha, I got all the good things and you have nothing. And he begins to enjoy and relish his treasures. But his treasures are quickly lost and broken and wasted. And he's left with nothing but rubbish after, after a few minutes. And all of his treasures fade to nothing before him. And then it is, it is patience who has given eternal treasures that will last forever and passion who is left with, left with nothing. Listen to how the interpreter sums it up. The things of this world live close to our desires, and eternal things are far away and are harder to crave. What he's saying here is that the things of this world, they have advertising, they have marketing. You can smell them, you can touch them, you can taste them, you can hear about them on television, or in the radio, or wherever. They're, they're all around us all the time. It's easy to desire good food and entertainment, to desire new technology and all the things of this world. All of those things are close at hand and so, so easily feed us and feed into our desires and feed into our wants. But we all know those things don't last. Those things get replaced. Those things break down and need to be again and again. More and more money has to be spent. Like the Egyptians, we're left coming back over and over every year to, to buy the new phone, to buy the new car, to buy the new uh, replacement for all of our appliances that don't work anymore. And so, like the Egyptians, we're satisfied, but never satisfied. And yet, the things of God are easily forgotten. You're not going to see the joys of heaven and the joys of being renewed and found in a house of peace advertised on television or on the radio. That's not something our culture is going to, going to praise. That is only found in the Bible and, and in the church of God's people as we look and study the Bible. This is why it's so important for us as we build our appetite to watch what we're putting into our own minds, putting into our own heads, and, and spending time with God's people and in God's word. And it's not wrong to enjoy the world that God's put us in. God delights in the world he gave us. He delights in the food, and he delights in our creativity as a species, and the fact that we're able to invent new things. That's a good thing. As long as we're not doing something that's, that's sinful or that drives us to sin, it's a good thing. And yet, that good thing can take away our appetite. It's, it's as if we're eating so much candy and junk food that we no longer desire the good food that will sustain our bodies. And so as we, as we watch our own minds, it is so important for us to ask the question regularly, what is it that I desire? What is it the thing that gets me excited? What is it that I'm wanting, that I'm looking forward to? Is it the next movie? Is it the next show or the next game or the next gadget? Or am I waiting and longing for the coming of my Lord? Am I waiting for heaven? Am I waiting for the restoration of God's people? The gathering in of the church? Am I excited for the salvation of the nations? Or am I excited for the next movie in the series? And so let us regularly ask these questions so that we don't, like the Egyptians, miss God because we're so busy filling our own bellies. And this is, this is such a powerful, important truth for us. But as, as we move into the final section, I want us to look at one more thing, this, this contrast between the Egyptians and the Israelites. Why is that there? And what we see is this, 
The, the Israelites are given food. They're given the cattle. They're given responsibilities. Joseph provides for them freely, but the Egyptians are paying the cost. They're the ones spending the livestock while the Israelites are receiving and growing theirs. Why, does, why is this in the Bible? Why is this contrast on display? Well, this passage is highlighting the difference between those who know God for his for the personal benefits of getting, you know, more food, and those who actually have a real relationship with God. We've seen in previous chapters that Jacob and now his sons and Joseph have a relationship with God while the Egyptians are just there to get their bellies filled. And, and this reminds me so much of, of John 6. Turn with me, for, if you would, for a moment to John 6. In John 6... Jesus is approached by a crowd of over 5,000 men. He feeds them using uh, just a few small things, a little bit of bread, a little bit of fish, and he feeds 5,000 people. And they're all amazed. Wow, here's a miracle worker. He He can heal diseases. He can feed people with almost nothing. We need to follow this guy. And they're all excited to follow Jesus because he's feeding their bellies. And then Jesus begins to preach and begins to talk of the exclusivity of salvation. Listen to what Jesus says in John 6, 35 through 40. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I say to you that you have seen me and do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Those who trust in Jesus will never need to buy food. They will always be sustained by their Father, just as Jacob's family is sustained. But those like these, these Jews who are coming to get their belly full, full, they're coming to be entertained, they're coming to see some more miracles, they are going to hunger again. And Jesus tells them that they don't know him, that they're just there for the handout, they're just there for the show. And, we're, and they begin to grumble as he talks about how they must know Jesus, they must be in a relationship with Jesus. And, and it kind of comes to a head. Look at the following verses here in John 6, 60 through 65. When many of his disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that the disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, do you take offense at this? Then what you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before. It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is of no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life, but they are for some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who were and who did not believe and who it, who it was who would betray him. And he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted by the Father. And here we begin to see the pivot. Here we begin to see the important truth. Jesus recognizes who is and is not his people. He knows who's there for their belly, whether it's Old Testament Egyptians or New Testament Jews, who's just there because there's blessing to be among God's people. There's blessings in a church community. And so people will want to gather just to be there and to be around, to be there for the social circle and the the benefits of having friends, maybe. And Jesus knows the people who are there to worship him, to be his people, to be his family, to be in relationship with him. And he recognizes this. And he says, it's not by your own integrity You're not going to figure out how to get to Jesus on your own. You're not going to be smart enough, attractive enough, big enough, strong enough. But only by the Spirit will you be saved. And this this should humble us. This should help us to recognize our relationship before God, that we cannot say, ah, I'm a Christian because I was smart enough to figure it out. But instead we say, I'm a Christian because the Holy Spirit opened my eyes The Holy Spirit caused me to see my need of a Savior, and I have run for it, and I have embraced the Savior. I am taking action, yes, but I am taking action because of my eyes were first opened by the Spirit. And this changes the way we pray for others. So we begin to pray and say, God, open the eyes of my loved ones. Open the eyes of my friends. Open the eyes of my family members, of my coworkers, my classmates. Help them to see their need of a Savior. And so as we see the need of a Savior and run towards Jesus, we pray 
that God would open the eyes of others. And so Jesus is the only way of salvation. And Jesus knows who is and his and his people. And he promises that those who are his people, he will not lose any of them. You heard that, that, uh, that beautiful statement last week as we looked at a different passage of Jesus speaking. And we see it again now in this passage. He says, I will not lose any of my own. And so if you have called out to Jesus, if you have said, Jesus, I want you to be my Lord and my Savior, not just the, the one who fills my belly and gives me a circle of friends so that I can kind of feel a little bit better about myself. But if you've surrendered your life to Jesus, you can rest assured that no matter your struggles, no matter your sins, no matter all the circumstances in your life, if you are trusting in Jesus as your Savior and as your shepherd, He will not lose you. He will not let you go. He will not allow you to stay in the far country for the rest of your life. Though you struggle, though you backslide, though you be lost for a season, the shepherd will go back and retrieve you and bring you back. And I'd encourage you to trust and cry out to your shepherd quickly. There's, there's an urgency to this passage. As, as these men and women are grumbling and leaving Jesus, there's an urgency. They do not know that Jesus is not going to be there forever. They're hoping that he's just going to keep feeding them and giving them a free handout. But Jesus is not going to be there forever. Soon he is going to the cross and soon he is going to ascend to the right hand of, his, of the Father. There's an urgency to Jesus' message. And, and in the famine back in, in Genesis 47, there's an urgency to the need. The famine is not going anywhere for a few more years and they can't just wait it out. They've learned that. That they must go and plead to Joseph. Joseph, feed us. Joseph, we will surrender our lives to Pharaoh if you will but give us enough food to live. And so they get the urgency, and they miss God. And it, it, it's so sad to see this. And yet God, in this passage, in his wisdom, is highlighting the difference between his people who trust him, who know him, are in relationship, and these men who were happy to get the blessings but refusing to surrender their life to God. They're happy to give their life to Pharaoh, but they do not turn their life over to God. Their, their problem is deeper than their hunger. Their problem is deeper than the famine. The problem is that they're worshiping these priests, these idols who can't do anything and who need to be protected by Pharaoh. And yet their religion is maintained, their faith is maintained in false gods. And there is, there is a tragedy to Genesis 47 and how close they are to getting it, but still missing the truth. Now, as we've, we've seen this contrast, let's look at Jacob's final words in verses 27 through 31. Jacob will not be buried in Egypt. Thus, Israel settled in the land of Egypt, in the land of Goshen, and they gained possession in it and were fruitful and multiplied greatly. Jacob lived in the land of Egypt 17 years. The days of Jacob, the years of his life, were 147 years. When the time drew near that Israel must die, he called his son Joseph and said to him, if now I have found favor in your sight, put your hand under my thigh and promise to deal kindly and truly with me. Do not bury me in Egypt, but let me lie in my with my fathers. Carry me out of Egypt and bury me in their burial place. He answered, I will do as you have said. And he said, swear it to me. And he swore to him, and Israel bowed himself upon the head of his bed. In a very real sense, this section is bookending the beginning of chapter 46. If you remember the beginning of 46... God told Jacob, you are to go to the land of Goshen. For the next generation, that will be the promised land. But it's not always going to be the promised land. Your ultimate promised land is in Canaan. It is in the land of Israel, what's going to be the land of Israel. And so Jacob wants to make it clear to his son, hey, you're the second in command in Egypt. This is a great place. Goshen is beautiful. Do not stay here. This is not our promised land. We're here. We're home here for now. But we are to go back. God has told us we are to obey God and go back to Canaan sooner than later. And so Jacob wants to leave a testimony, leave a message behind to his future generations. Goshen is a blessing. Do not stay here. This is a temporary sojourning. You are travelers here. When you go on a trip, you take a suitcase and you maybe get a few things out of the suitcase, but you don't redecorate your hotel room. You know, you don't change out the artwork. You don't, you know, put your clothes in all the, the drawers and, you know, put the suitcases in the closet and live in the hotel. You're there as a sojourner. Maybe if you're there for a while on a business trip, you make yourself a little bit comfortable. But you're ultimately a traveler and you have a home to go to. And you never forget that. And so Jacob is calling his family. Yes, you're settling in the land of Goshen and it's beautiful and God's blessing you. But you are to remain as sojourners. 
And this, I think, is such an important application for us. And we have to ask the question, are we living as sojourners? Are we pilgrims in this world? Or have we put down so many roots? Is our life so wrapped up in the world, in our careers, in our jobs, in our families, in our schooling, that we've forgotten that we're sojourners? You know, have we moved into the hotel room so much that we've forgotten that our home is in heaven? Are we looking forward to heaven, or have we made ourselves so comfortable we never want to leave? And Jacob wants this message to go to his family. We are a family of sojourners. God's people are a people of pilgrims, of sojourners, those who are on a journey. We see here that he once again does the hand under the thigh, which is very awkward. Let's be honest. It's very awkward. You would rem- the reason is because that's something you would remember. This is something like you're not going to just accidentally put your hand under your dad's thigh. If you do that, there's something there to be remembered. There's something important. Now, this is the second time it's happened. Does anybody remember the first time we saw the hand under the thigh? Hmm? Chapter, this is, uh, yes, chapter 24. Uh, Abraham made his servant put his hand under his thigh to go and get a wife for Isaac. And the message there was, do not let my son intermarry into the land and lose his identity as the family of Abraham. And, And there was this important goal. And it's the same goal, and that's why these two passages both highlight this hand under the thigh, so that we connect the message here. In both cases, first Abraham and now Jacob is saying, do not lose your identity. You are moving in first with the Canaanites and now with the Egyptians. You're moving into another people's land. They're going to want you to intermarry. They're going to want you to become part of them. Don't do it. You must keep your identity unique. You are called to be a unique people. Now, for us, if you remember, there's an obvious you know, an obvious application for those who are dating or seeking marriage that we are not to intermarry with unbelievers. But for all of us, whether we're married or unmarried, we have a divine calling to keep ourselves, like the Israelites, a separate people. We are Christians first and Americans second. We are not called to be indistinguishable from the world. We are called to be salt and light. And so I'd encourage you regularly asking yourselves, can, can my unsaved coworkers? Tell the difference between me and those who are not saved. Can my unsaved classmates tell the difference between me and my unsaved classmates? Is there a difference? Is, is the fact that I'm a Christian changing anything about the way I live? You know, or maybe if you're not in work or school, you know, if I go to the grocery store, if I'm ordering a sandwich at a sandwich shop, can the woman or the man at the counter tell that there's something different about me? Do I have a hope? that the man or woman in front and behind me don't have? Can, is, is God distinct to me? Am I recognizable as a Christian? Or am I just one more person in line, one more person to go past, one more person in the classroom or the workplace who's just there to punch in, punch out, fill out my test, whatever it is? Is there something distinctive about us? And Jacob wants a legacy for his family. And, and, and as he makes his request, one final question that we can ask ourselves is this. How will your life influence future generations? What will your legacy be? I know there's a lot of younger people here today, and you know, when you're in your early 20s, you're not really thinking about what your intergenerational legacy might be. But I encourage all of us, whether you're young or whether you're old, to begin to think about what is my legacy going to be? How will future generations remember me? And notice that Jacob has his own children, yes. He adopts eventually Jacob's two sons as his own, so he takes on two more adopted sons. So it's not just biological children for his legacy, but adopted children in his legacy. But then on top of that, Jacob is leaving a legacy for the Egyptians and the Canaanites. The Egyptians are going to be very aware of the fact that when Jacob dies, that all of the Hebrews take his body, and we'll see in a few chapters, and they're going to go bury him in Canaan. It's going to be very big and very obvious. And it's going to stand out to them and go, oh, they're not joining us. They're not intermarrying with us. They're not just some of the guys, some of the boys. They are a separate family. God is using them in a way that's different than us. And so their difference will stand out. The Egyptians will have to recognize in Jacob's burial service, in his funeral service, that he is different from them. And then as they go back into Canaan, it'll be once again a message to the Canaanites. They thought that Jacob's family was gone forever. You know, they've moved away, they pulled up the tents, they covered their wells, and we won't see them again. And yet, here comes Jacob's funeral procession, and all the sons, 
And they're going to say, no, God has given us this land, and we're going to be back someday. Because we follow God, and God has told us where our promised land is. We're not going to just blend in and disappear in Egypt. We will come back someday. And so Jacob's tomb, Abraham's tomb, Isaac's tomb is going to be a, a memorial, a reminder that we're coming back. We are going to obey God and go where God sends us. And, and to the nations, this is the claim that Jacob's family will make. This is the legacy that he gives his sons. And so there's this beautiful picture here. And, and, and on top of that, too, think about the 12 brothers. We're going to consider them in the next two chapters as well. Their story is just so powerful to me. You think about these 12 sons who were bickering, who were warring, who were murderers. They can't stand each other. They're fighting with each other. And now here they are living in the land of Goshen, working together to care for Pharaoh's cattle, loving their brother Joseph, serving alongside him. There is peace for the last 17 years of Jacob's life in his family. He sees his family restored, something that every parent wants to see their, their children all living in harmony. He's given that great blessing. And their testimony now before all of Egypt is that God has taken a family that was contentious. They witnessed all of those back and forth conversations of Jacob's testing them and sending them. They knew Simeon when he was locked in prison for that year. And now they've seen, wait a second, that man he locked up, Simeon, who was the, the horrible son, he's now being loved by the rest of the family. He's being loved and he's part of part of Joseph's family. Joseph's forgiven him. Joseph's reunited him. They may have watched even Joseph hug Simeon. And they've seen this beautiful testimony of how God has changed their family. The, the, the brokenness of Jacob's family was on display for Egypt, and now the healing is on display. The, the way that God has changed them and God has worked in their lives. And so all of Jacob's family now has a legacy in the land of Egypt pointing to the goodness of God and the God who changes families who restores, who heals not just the, the, the penalty of sin, but the effects of sin as well. And so as we see their family being restored, being a testimony to the nations, let's begin to ask ourselves this question, even from a young age, for those who are still young, what will our legacy be? What will we be remembered for? Will we be remembered for pointing to a story that's greater than our own? where all our lives reflect the beauty of the gospel and a God who changes families, who changes each and every one of us? Or will we simply be remembered for our stubbornness, our sense of humor, you know, what we like to do, what we did for our employment, or our selfishness, our foolishness, or you know, our passing knowledge on gadgets or whatever it is we did for work? What will be your legacy? How will future generations look back? What, what, what will you pass down to other generations? Will it be an understanding of the beauty of the gospel of Jesus? Will we teach our children and their children, their children after them, that Jesus is first and foremost, that he is our savior, that we are in relationship with him? Or simply that, you know, church was a great place to go and a great, great place to have friends. Will we miss it like the Egyptians or will we get it like Joseph and his family as they trust in God? My prayer is that for my family and for our, all of our families here in this church, that we would teach our kids the real relationship, the real full gospel, that they would understand that our legacy would continue in this church and in all of our families, pointing to the beauty of the gospel and a real meaningful relationship with God. And not just that if you obey God, God will do nice things for you. A simple, shallow, false gospel. As we conclude this morning, I wanted you to encourage you to wrestle with both the generosity of God, but the exclusivity of God. God is freely offering us a greater gift than Goshen, to be restored to Him in relationship, heaven for all eternity, longer than just the generation in Goshen. And yet we are called to surrender our lives to claim this gift. It's funny because the price of our lives is so small compared to an eternity in heaven with God, restoration with our divine. And yet it's no small thing to lay down our life to choose to follow Jesus, to say, I will give my life to follow Jesus. No turning back. And, and these two truths I'd encourage you to wrestle with. If you have not yet made a profession of faith, if you have not yet come to faith in Jesus, I would encourage you, weigh these things. These are heavy things to consider. But with an urgency. We are called, we are called to follow Christ and we are not promised another day. If you have not laid down your life, wrestle with God until you are sure of your faith. Cry out to him, and he will call you his own. Be united as quickly as possible 
to his family, to his church, to be welcomed and publicly recognized as a follower of Jesus. We are called to join as a church to be God's family. And I encourage you to recognize this, why you have time, why you have breath. There's a real urgency as even we begin to wrestle with these important truths. Pursue, though, a real relationship with Jesus. Again, it is, it's not enough just to go to church or to hang out with Christian people or to eat with Christian people or to have good, interesting spiritual conversations. No, you are saved only by trusting your life in Jesus Christ. And I encourage you, get on your knees and understand who Jesus really is. And for those of you who are Christians, I'm to encourage you with this. Keep a tight hold on your appetite. Don't let this world drown out eternal beauty. There's so many things to do, so many temporary excitements, so many things that must happen and will happen and need to happen and, you know, we're excited for. Don't let your spiritual appetite be dulled by this world because this world wants nothing more than to feed your indulgent flesh and drown out all of your appetite for the things of God. Make time for the scriptures. Make time for your, for your church family. Make time to study God's word, to, to foster that kind of appetite in your own heart. The same way you, you want to foster an appetite to eat more healthy, the way you have to work at that, is the same way, even more urgently, you must work to foster an appetite for the things of the Lord. And I encourage you, seek out a relationship with the Lord and not just to be, to be satisfied, but to be fully filled. Rest in the knowledge that your satisfaction, your salvation, your satisfaction is assured in Christ alone and only He can heal your afflictions and bring you into the promised land forever. I pray that this beautiful truth of Jesus will carry you through both the hard seasons of your life as well as the, the joyous, busy, crazy seasons of your life, that you would trust in Christ and Christ alone. Join me as we pray. Father, we thank you that our salvation is not by our own wisdom, by our own merit. We thank you, Lord, that we rest in the arms of Jesus. Please, Lord, help us to cling so desperately to the cross that our salvation would be found there and not in ourselves. Help us to find real, meaningful assurance as we trust you. Help us to see you in the valleys, in the rough, in the hard seasons of life, in the prosperous and busy seasons when it seems like everything is going our way. Whatever, wherever we are, Lord, Wherever each and every one of our hearts is, God, help us to find you. Help us to be quiet where we need to be quiet. Help us to pray where we need to pray. Draw us deeper into your word so that we would know what is good, what is true. Help us to be in a relationship with you and not just being satisfied to get the grain and go home and do our own thing. Help us, Lord, to drive out the idols, drive out the false priests, even in our own heart. We want to worship everything but you. Help us, Lord tear down the idols of our heart by your strength, by your Holy Spirit opening our eyes. Help us, Lord, to trust in you. We pray, Lord, your Holy Spirit would open the eyes of our loved ones, of our children, of our friends and family and coworkers and classmates, of those around us who we love and care about, who do not know you yet. Lord, if there's anyone here who does not know you, open their eyes, we pray. Help them to see the beauty of the gospel. Help them to surrender their lives to you. Thank you that you are a God who has promised to raise a multitude that we cannot count. Bless the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.